Uh, we will be finishing the book of Malachi today. We started it uh, back at the end of October, and we are now coming to the end of it today. The title is Last Words. So we'll be in Malachi chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 13, and then we'll go to the end of the book. Um, and, and, and just to, to kind of prepare, and as we think about this, I, wa- I want to ask you, have you ever heard someone say, what does it matter? Or what's the point? These words indicate that, that we believe it is uh, no value to continue in a certain course of action. Perhaps you've heard him said like this, what does it matter if I study? What does it matter if I go to work? What does it matter if I try hard? What does it matter if I love my spouse? Now, these are the very words that Israel, at the moment in, Ma- in the book of Malachi, is saying about God. What does it matter if we believe in God? What's the point of trusting him? What's the point of obeying him? Israel believes, and if you've been with us through the book of Malachi, that there is no point in worshiping God. Now, it's not hard for us to think of an atheist saying something like this. But we have to realize that Israel's not made up of atheists. They are considered to be the very people of God. What that means is that if Malachi was written today, it would be addressed to the church. You see, all of Israel is wearing the name tag Christian or, or believer. But what we come to realize as we walk through the Old Testament, as we look in Malachi, and as we look at like Paul's letters, as he talks about Israel, is that not all of Israel is Israel, meaning not all Israel actually believes in Jesus. And what we understand even today And in this room, we know that not everyone here is a believer, and we know not everyone that says, oh, I'm a Christian, is actually a Christian. We we talked about that through the book of Hebrews, and we see that reality as we walk through God's word, and as we do life with the church. But let me ask you, have you ever wondered, does it really matter if I believe in God? Maybe you're asking the question today. Now, if, you're, if you have a middle schooler or high school student, or if you are a middle school or high school student, then you, you are wrestling with that question. You think about that question on a regular basis. What does it matter if we really believe in God? I mean, if you are 6, 16, 26, 46, 66, or 86, this question is very, very important. I mean, think about it, think about it like this. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. After this book, God is going to be silent for 400 years until the birth of Christmas. See, that, that's our tie-in to Christmas, and that's about as much as this sermon is going to do for Christmas. Um, but the next two, Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, will be much more around the birth and celebration of Jesus Christ. Um, but if Israel is going to continue in their faith, if they're going to, to look towards the Messiah, then they need to know the answer to this question. They need to know if their faith really does matter. And the same goes for us today. If we are going to persevere in our faith as we wait for the return of Jesus, then we need to know the answer to this question. And that's the point of our text, that our faith does matter There is a day of distinction coming, and really, that's our main point today. The main point is we long for the day when God will definitively make a distinction between the godly and the ungodly. 
So that, that's what this text is, is wanting us to see as we come through it. And so if you will stand with me, we're going to read Malachi chapter 3, verse 13, and go to the end of the book. We stand here when we read God's word as a reminder that this is God's word given to us so that we'd be equipped for every work that he has given us to do. We'll start in verse 13. You, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son, his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the ones who serve God and the ones who do not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I command him, commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come. And strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Let me pray. Father, we, we come to you now. We thank you for your word, your word that's been given to us. And God, it is so applicable for us today in a culture in which so many people have wrestled with their faith and walked away from you. And so, Lord, I pray today as we come into your word that your spirit would strengthen our faith, that you would drive the roots of our faith deep into your character, into your promises, and that we would know you, and we would love you, and we would persevere in believing in you. God, help us to truly understand that our faith in you matters, matters more than anything else. In your name, Jesus, amen. You may be seated. Uh, so let me give you a quick just road map today. Uh, this is what we're going to do. We're going to say, we're going to see two ways that man thinks of God. We're going to see, see two ways that God responds to man. And then we're going to see two ways that we prepare for the great day of the Lord. So there's lots of twos today. And we're going to try to make our way through all of us. So we'll start out two ways man thinks about God. And if you remember, our series title has been Confronting Religious Skepticism. What we have seen is that Israel is a religiously skeptical people, and the religious skeptic says there is no point to worship God. And we see that. Verse 14, it's vain to serve God. The word vain means futile. It means worthless. And then notice what they say. What is the profit 
of our keeping his charge of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. Meaning, what does it matter if we obey his words? What does it matter if we repent and feel sorrowful over our sins? Does that actually do anything? Now remember, Malachi is addressing a godly people, or at least people who have an understanding of God and his covenants. Everyone is wearing the name tag Christian that he's talking to. So we, we can't read we should never read the Bible as if it doesn't have application towards us, but especially the Old Testament. I think sometimes we do that. We go, well, they're far away from us, way different cultures, way different times. But what we're going to see is this, this message is extremely applicable for us today. In our culture, we see that there's religiously skeptical people, and it's become popular to begin deconstructing one's faith. Have you heard that word, deconstruction? It's become very, very popular. In fact, I would say Malachi is a roadmap of what deconstruction looks like. Deconstruction is when someone begins to dismantle or no longer believe the things they once believed about God. And so what we see is Israel, they had rebuilt the temple, they reinstituted the sacrificial system, and they did all of this in hopes of God coming, freeing them from foreign oppression, strengthening their nation so they would rise to power again. But that didn't happen. Life stayed hard. That's why in chapter 1, so this is your recap of the book of Malachi, that's why in chapter 1, they thought, surely God doesn't love us. And because God doesn't love us, we're no longer going to worship him. That's why they begin to bring stolen, blind, and lame animals for their sacrifices. In chapter 2, we see that they're no longer worshiping God according to his word. Remember, the Levites had ceased to teach the word of God appropriately. And because the word of God was neglected, all the relationships within the community began to fall apart. People were not loving one another. Marriages were ending in divorce. Adultery was being committed. And the people were marrying a foreign people, women who worshipped foreign gods. And the ultimate problem was not, was, not, um, was not a racist issue or an ethnic issue, but it was a spiritual issue. When they went to worship or when they married these people who worshipped other gods, they brought their gods now into the very people of Israel. So Israel began to worship other gods. And then in chapter 3, last week that Chris preached, we see that Israel no longer gives their tithes to God. I mean, God hasn't blessed us, so I'm certainly not going to give him back anything. Certainly not the things that I've worked hard for. Israel's life had not improved. And so what they have figured is that there's no point to believe in God, and so they begin to deconstruct their faith. Same thing happens today. People are deconstructing their faith and walking away because they think their faith in God does not matter. They see no tangible difference in their lives. And so let me just give you two things, and this isn't comprehensive, that deconstructionists will, will believe or, or hold to be true. So these are just two things. Number one, Deconstruction views our relationship with God as a transaction. If I do this, then God will do this. If I obey God, God will bless me. Think of it like a vending machine. You walk up, you put your money in the vending machine, you push the Snickers bar button or whatever it is of your preference, 
And it comes out, right? That's what's expected to have happen. And we hear this kind of thinking all the time in the church. And you've probably done it, and I know that you have heard it. We hear things like, I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, and yet, how did this happen? Why would God let this happen? Why is my marriage difficult? Why can I not get a job? Why am I still wrestling with finances? As if my obedience to God would then make everything else work out and there would be no difficulties in my life. And so what do we do when God doesn't bless us when and how we want? Well, what would you do? Think about it. What would you do if you go to a vending machine, you put your money in, you hit the Snickers bar button, and it doesn't give you a Snickers bar? What would you do? Yeah, you hit it, and you put more money in because you're first like, well, you know, maybe it was a Canadian coin or something. And so you put it in, and you keep hitting the button, and it still doesn't work. At some point, you stop putting money in, right? Like, we get wise, and we go, hmm, it's not giving me what it's supposed to give me, and therefore, it would be foolish to continue in this relationship. So what are we going to do? I want to go find a different vending machine. I want to find one that works, that gives me the Snickers, but I really don't even eat Snickers. <laughs> but if I was to eat a candy bar, it would probably be Snickers, probably. But anyways, not necessarily an important point. Um, what happens when we view our relationship with God as a transaction, we place ourselves as judge. And God has to act a certain way and based upon his actions, we will determine if he's worthy or not to be worshipped. It's exactly what happens in a transactional relationship. If it doesn't work out, I will go find someone or something else that will satisfy me. Number two, deconstruction does not have a category for suffering. You'll notice that when you're talking to people who are walking away from the church, saying, God has failed me, I will never go back. Oftentimes, more than not, there's been some type of difficulty, of trial, of pain that this person has experienced. They figure, if God is holy, if he's powerful, if he's good, if he's infinitely blessed, and I do my part, meaning and I do the very things that he tells me to do, then how and why should I ever suffer? How can Israel be suffering if they obey God? How can they still be under foreign rule? How can my life not work out if I do the very things the scripture tells me to do? Maybe you've heard of the theologian J.B. Phillips. When he, was, when he was five years old, his mom got cancer. And so he then watched over the next 10 years as that cancer ravaged her body. She slowly weakened and died. And at 15 years old, he says, I have no need for God. Some of you have been there. Many of you know people who have had that type of experience. If we have no category for suffering, what we prove is we actually do not know Scripture, we do not know God, and we certainly do not know the gospel of Jesus Christ. After all, this is what Jesus said, John 16, 33. He says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, but in the world you will have peace tribulation but take heart i have overcome the world so just like israel people today have become religious skeptics and they walk away because god walked away from god because life didn't go as planned
That's exactly where Israel is at this moment. It's where some of you might be, and certainly you know many people that have been in that boat. So that's, that's the first response to God. That's what we see. The second one is we see the God-fearing person. Verse 16, we read, Then those who feared the Lord. And then at the end of that verse, we read, Those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, we've preached on the fear of God. We did a whole man camp on the fear of God. So I'm not going to repeat all of those kinds of things. But to fear God and to esteem his name is to love him, is to honor him, and is to desire to please him with all of one's life. This person is the exact opposite of the religious skeptic. They see God as their anchor, and they look at Scripture as the lens in which they see everything else in this world. Job is a really good example of one who fears God. Job, the book of Job, he went through immense suffering. He lost all of his possessions. He loses all of his children. And this is what he says after he has lost everything. In chapter 2, verse 10, he responds, Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? Now, this doesn't mean Job doesn't wrestle with his faith. He wrestles intensely. In fact, um, in a, probably around March, we're going to be starting a series in the book of Job, and we're going to walk through this book. So if you want, you can go ahead and begin reading through the book several times in preparation for that series. But when we get to Job and we see that he loses everything and he still continues to worship God, we're forced with saying, how? Why? What is it that the God-fearing person knows that the religious skeptic refuses to believe? And there's at least two things that we can come to. Number one, they're known by God. Look at verse 16. God pays attention to those who fear him. He hears them, and everything about them is written in a book of remembrance. Now, now realize this. God is omniscient. What that means, he knows everything. He never learns anything. Isn't that, wouldn't that be amazing? Like, you would never go to school because you literally know everything. Like, that, that would be, students are all going, huh, that would be a lot better than going to school every day. Um, so what that means is when Malachi writes, there's a book of remembrance, we're not to think, oh, I'm sure glad God has a book of remembrance so that he can remember little old me and not forget that I actually do love him and fear him. Rather, the book of remembrance is not because God is forgetful, but it's given to us and it's written so we would know how certain and how secure our relationship is with God. Does that make sense? God doesn't need a book to remember you. Your name is written and inscribed on the palm of his hand. He knows who his children are. So this imagery is given for you and for me to fortify our faith, to strengthen our faith, to make sure we know how we are held and secured by God. And look at verse 17. We're told, in that day, which we'll, we'll talk more about that in a moment, but in that day, it will be made known we are what? God's treasured possession. Look, if you believed in Jesus Christ, then you are God's treasured possession. Do you, do you know that? Like God loves you. Loves you deeply. In fact, in Galatians 4, we're told that every believer is adopted into God's family. We're given his spirit to dwell in us so we would cry out, Abba, Father, every day 
of our life. Because we are his children, this means that when we do experience trials and sufferings, that we know that it's not for our destruction, but for our good. In fact, a couple weeks ago in Malachi chapter 3, verse 3, we read that Jesus is going to come as a refining fire. Do you remember that? And he purifies, he refines the silver to take the dross out of it, to remove the sin. And that's what he's doing in our lives. Uh, through trials, he's removing sinful desires and pleasures. In fact, the book of Hebrews helps us understand this purifying work that Jesus does in our life. This is what Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 8, and then verse what 10 says. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves. So remember, you are a treasured possession. The presence of trials and difficulty in your life is not the absence of God's love, but is the very presence of God's love. Because he says, I discipline the one that I love. And God chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure because God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He's literally saying if there's no trials, no pain, no suffering, no difficulty in your life, that's a sign that you don't belong to God. Verse 10, for they disciplined us, referring to earthly fathers, for they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good that we would share in his holiness. You get that? As children, we're not exempt or immune to pain, to suffering, and to hardships in any way. And, and this doesn't need to worry us because God's in control. He's the perfect father who's disciplining us, bringing things into our life to remove the dross, preparing us for holiness, that we would dwell with him for all of eternity. Why? Because we're his children, his very treasured possession. We have to come back to these truths. When we wrestle with the very trials and difficulties in our life, and they're making us go, God, where are you? Do you not love me? No. The truth the scripture says, the presence of trials is the presence of his love working in my life, and I am his treasured possession, and he loves me. So that's truth number one, that they're known by God. Truth number two is that there is a day of distinction coming. Look at verse 18. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. So right now the godly and ungodly both experience suffering. We both experience cancer, disease, trials, hardships, brokenness. It's because of this present reality that the religious skeptic will say there's, there's no benefit to being a person of God. There's no benefit to believing in him. In fact, in verse 15, notice the accusation they bring. And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, they put God to the test. And what happens? Does God, does God pass the test? No, he fails because they escape. Which means the evildoers are prospering. It appears that to be wicked is more advantageous even. It seems like they get away with things. It seems like they don't get taken to court. It seems like when they cheat, they don't get caught. They get bigger houses. 
But for the Christian, it just seems that we're always getting caught and always getting the short stick. And we're always coming down with the diseases. But then look at verse 15, or 18. A day is coming in which there will be a decisive distinction made between the godly and the ungodly, between the one who fears God and the religious skeptic. And, and notice what he says. It says, uh, verse, I lost it now. I come back, 18. Then once more, which means we've seen it before. Like if you go back to the days of Noah, God's people are protected within an ark as all unbelievers are experiencing God's wrath. And then if you go to the Exodus, you see God's plagues coming upon the Egyptians while his people are spared and held secure. So we've seen this in the past, and all of these are foretastes of a much greater day of distinction coming in the future. And we're told that there will be a great day in the future. This text, this day is referred to six times in our text. And in verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 5, it's called the great and awesome day of the Lord. And on this day, God will answer the question, does it matter if we believe in God or not? On this day, God, for one final time, will distinguish between the godly and the ungodly. And so that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at like, what is happening on this day? And we see that God responds to man in two ways. There's two ways we come to God. We either come to him as a religious skeptic, or we come to him as the one who fears him. And there's going to be two ways that God responds. One towards the religious skeptic, one towards the one who fears him. So begin, number one, God will eternally judge the skeptic. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I just want you to think about those words. Burning oven, blazing fire, stubble, neither root nor branch remain. So like if there's no root and there's no branches, that means there's no trunk. So it's all gone, totally consumed, totally devoured. What do, you, what do you think those images are meant to convey? Just think about that. Like Jewish literature is meant to be communicated primarily in images, and that's exactly what we have here. There's these images that are being given so we would understand what will happen to religious skeptic on that day. So what do they mean? Well, they refer to destruction, pain, fury, punishment, everlasting wrath. Yeah, the godly or the ungodly may prosper now. And it may look like their life is easier now. But we're told that one day all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. And the word arrogant it refers to the mindset of those who live independent of God. They think they have no need of God, which means they do not need Jesus. They do not need to live for him. We go through this world operating on our wisdom and our strength. I don't need God's wisdom. I don't need his grace. I don't need anything that he gives me. And this person can, what we understand, be in and outside the church. 
So wrestle with that. Like you can't just read Malachi or any part of Scripture and go, well, that's nice for other people. But we need to wrestle through, just as we went through the book of Hebrews. It's written so we would have confidence in our faith. So he's wanting us to have confidence. We don't want to be like the religious skeptic, so we'll need to live and trust in God in a different way than what they have done. The word evildoer refers to the actions of the arrogant. So the arrogant means the mindset in which they operate, totally independent of God. And if you're going to be independent of God, that means everything you're going to do is evil, meaning you're doing nothing to please God, nothing to honor God, nothing to glorify God. Your heart is not bent towards God, it's bent away from God. So everything you do is against God. And notice the word all. All the arrogant, all the evildoers. On that day, the great and awesome day of the Lord, we're told all the ungodly will forever be judged. No one will escape God's judgment. There is no hiding from his wrath. And on that day, no one will ask, where is God's justice? No one will ask that question ever again on that day. No one will ask, is there any benefit to believing in God? No one will ask that. It will be made as clear as night and day. Listen, if you remain in your arrogance, if you think you do not need God, then scripture promises there is a day coming where you will suffer for eternity. And when will this day come? It comes when Jesus returns again. Jesus came in the beginning. The first time he came, 2,000 years ago, where the incarnation, we celebrate the Christmas, the birth of Jesus Christ, where then he lived for 30 plus years, and he came like a lamb, that he would go to the slaughter, where he would go in your place and my place, where he would die on a cross, crucified, paying the penalty for our sins. So that's, that's the first coming. Second coming, the great and awesome day of the Lord, he will not come like a lamb. We're told he will come like a lion. We're told he'll come, Revelation 19, like a great warrior, where he will defeat and destroy and decimate every kingdom and every unbeliever. No one will stand in opposition to him on that day. And there are no second chances. Like, not everyone gets a trophy. There's no participation awards. No, well, hey, you did your best. We'll do a, we'll do a bell curve. See how that works out for you. There's no do-overs. Hebrews 9, 27. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So the way we will come to that day is either we will die first, awaiting for that day, or Jesus will return, and we will meet him on that day. Now the reality is we all deserve this wrath. So none of us can just sit here and, and poke at others and say, glad I'm not them. We all deserve this wrath. Every single person apart from Jesus Christ deserves the very wrath of God because we are arrogant. We think we can do so much on our own. We think we can accomplish much on our own. We think we don't need God's grace. We don't need his wisdom. That's why we often say things, well, um, the last result is prayer. As if I've tried everything else, I guess I can start depending upon God. Or we come up with really great theological sayings like Jesus take the wheel. As if he wasn't taking the wheel the whole time. 
And maybe after it gets a little difficult, I'll say, well, do you want to try? That's how we operate, right? We so are arrogant. This is why even, even once we come to know Christ, we need his grace every single day. And why we continue practicing repentance. And why it says that Jesus comes like a refining fire to burn out the dross in our lives. Because we might be saved from the penalty of sin when we believe in him. But we still wrestle with the presence of sin in our life until that day. And so don't sit here and go, well, the arrogant unbelievers, wow, they're, they're a horrible bunch of people. No, you are one of them. We are one of them. And there is nothing you did in a, of yourself to remove yourself from that category. It's all by God's grace. Amen. It's all God's grace. He sent his son to die on the cross. The forgiveness would be possible. And then his spirit comes upon you through the hearing of God's word, regenerates your heart, your dead, lifeless, spiritual corpse, and awakens you so you would hear God's word and say, yes, Jesus is Lord. I want to live for him. That's salvation. People always say, well, why don't you do more altar calls? We don't need altar calls. We preach God's word. The spirit regenerates, makes us alive. So when we hear scripture, we go, yes, I want Jesus. The altar call is not the proof that you have believed in him. The fact that now you now fear him and love him and desire to please him with every part of your life proves that now you love him. So that's, that's, that's number one, what God will do to the skeptic. But then... But then we come to the God-fear. And look at this. This is how God, God will eternally bless the God-fear. And I'm pretty sure fear is a real, real, word, real word. John and I were talking the other day. We make up words, right? It works. Um, look at chapter 4, verse 2 and 3. But for you who fear. So just, just remember, remember. Read this like you're my, you're my treasured possession. And God is Father and he loves you. So he's just saying, for everyone who doesn't love me, for everyone who rejects me, this is what's going to happen. And now he comes. And just think of the father sitting with his child. And he's now going to tell him how much I love you. And so this is what he says. He says, but for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. There's just so much we can say, but three words. The word healing. Jesus' return is likened to the rising of the sun. The warmth of his righteousness will fill this world and all who fear his name will experience his comfort and his healing. Never again will you experience pain, trials, suffering, hardships, or any kind of evil. Every tear will be wiped away from your eye. You will be given new glorified bodies, bodies that will never wear out, bodies that will never be ravaged by age or disease. Isn't that good news? That's just the first word. Second word, leaping. He says, you leap like calves running out of the stall into the open field. Now, I'm not a farmer. Never had a cow, never had a calf. Don't even, don't even, don't even know what that looks like in a firsthand experience. 
these calves come out of the stall with great joy, jumping up and down with the freedom that they have, knowing never, 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 never where their joy ever end or be quenched. God is infinitely glorious, and because our joy is in him, it will be everlasting. Do you get that? That's why people are like, what are we going to do in heaven after like a million years? Like, it's going to be so boring. Like, I get that. But then, this, this is what you do at that moment. Bring them to God. Say, if God is infinite, and he's infinitely blessed, and he is eternal life, then his life and joy is now in us, eternal life, eternal joy. It'll never be satisfied. It'll never be quenched. We will forever leap like calves in the presence of God on that day. Number three, treading. Notice what we learn here. We will join Jesus in his rule and judgment. We will tread with him on the arrogant. All who have been, all who martyred and mocked God, the gospel, and the church will be ashes under our feet. And that's not meant to give us some type of triumphalism where we are, are looking down upon others, but it's wanting us to know that Jesus came, that he would share everything with us even his throne and his rule. This is what we read, Revelation 2, verse 26. He says, the one who conquers, meaning the believer, the one who perseveres in their faith, the one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he, he's talking about believers here. He's talking about the one who conquered. He says, to the Christian, he will rule with a rod of iron, as with earthen pots are broken in pieces, and I, and that even as I myself have received authority from my Father. You see, he's saying, the Christian, the one who perseveres, the one who obeys, will sit with me on my throne, and with a rod of iron, the rod of iron that he holds, he will also hold, and together they will rule judgment on everyone. Jesus shares the rule of his glory and his throne with his people. So in the present, there are days... And there are times when the church, the God-fearing, will look defeated, broken, and cast down. So just, just know that. You have to have that category as a Christian. We're going to go through life. It's going to get hard. And it's sometimes hard for us in America to think that, so that's why we need to be reminded of the global church so much and what they're enduring on a daily basis. But there's days we're going to be ridiculed, mistreated, marginalized. We're going to lose friendships at times. We're going to lose our jobs. But there is a day coming. And on that day, there's a reversal that will be made. So all the ungodly, where it looks that they have prospered for their whole life, they will never prosper again. And all the godly who have experienced pain and suffering and appears that they have not prospered will only experience joy for everlasting. There is a day of distinction that is coming. The separating of the goats and the sheep. You can read at the end of Matthew 25. And all the sheep will be brought in and forever dance with joy, leaping before the very throne of God. So lastly, how do we prepare for this day? There's so much we could say here, but I'm just going to do this kind of quick. How do we prepare for this day? 
Let me just give two things. Number one, remember God's word. Chapter two, we saw that the priests in Malachi neglected God's word. The neglecting of God's word resulted in the lovelessness of the people of God, broken marriages, and adultery. Do you remember what what Jesus says in John 13? What's the distinguishing mark of a believer? Do you remember what John says 46 times in 1 John? Believers are to what? Love one another. And so, when we neglect the word of God, we will not live as God has called us to. And so here, the very thing that Malachi is telling us to do, that God tells us to do, Malachi 4.4, God says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. Remember, God has a book. And in his book is written the names of those who love him. And because of this book, he's moved to action that he would delight in them and, and, and fill our lives with joy and blessing, especially then on, on that day. And as he has a book, so we have a book. And our book is about God, about how he has acted, about his character, what it means to live like God. And so our remembrance of God's word means we are to know, delight, and obey God's word. In fact, if you read Psalm 1, this is what Psalm 1 says, verses 1, through, one 2, and 3. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Meaning, blessed is the person who's not the religious skeptic, the arrogant, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. God has given us his word that we would know him, and that our faith would be fueled by God's word, and thus meaning our roots of faith would grow deep into the very gospel, clinging to the very character of God. But if we do not know his word, our the roots of our faith will not grow deep. It's only as we continue to come into God's word, reminded of who he is, reminded of the gospel, reminded that Jesus' exaltation is preceded by what? Suffering, setting the very pattern for all who will follow him, that there is always suffering prior to exaltation. That is the path of the Christian life, That is what Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 through 11 teaches us. And we will come to that understanding when we're in his word. The deconstructionist, the religious skeptic, what they need is two things at least. Number one, you to be in the word. And number two, for you to share the word with them. Because they do not understand the word of God. Number two, first thing, we must know God's word. And just say, um, spend time every day. Every day. And I know some of you are like, oh, man, that's hard. I, I get that. Because there's dross in our life. But the more we spend time in his word, the more he grows us in our love for his word. And the things that used to distract us from the word will become abhorrent to us. And we will hate the days that we're not in his word. And so if you're sitting here right now and you're saying, man, I just just can't do that. I don't have the time. 
It's because there's a dross in you. You're being distracted by the very things of the world. You're having the mindset of the arrogant at this moment, thinking, I can do things apart from God. Your presence in God's word, your studying and meditating is you saying, I need your grace in my life. I need to trust in you. I need to be reminded of who you are and how you work and how you love me and that I'm your treasured possession and that there's a day coming so that I can have faith and hope now in the present. So be in God's word. Number two, remember God's judgment. And that's always, you know, fun and we love to think about judgment. But, but, but think about this. Look at the last words in verse six. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. These are the last words of the Old Testament. These are the last words. Be silent. 400 years. What are the last words of the Old Testament? Believe or you will face judgment. That's how it ends. Does, does it matter if we believe? Book of Malachi. Does it matter? Yes, it matters because there's a day coming. 400 years of silence as they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Now think about how Revelation 22 ends. Verse 12, Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. Verses 18 through 20. I warn everyone who hears the words of the, the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Lord Jesus, come. Old Testament ends, believe in Jesus Christ or there is judgment. New Testament ends, believe in Jesus Christ because I'm coming and I will repay everyone for what they have done. The righteous, for the righteous and the ungodly, the arrogant, they will experience the very judgment of God for all of eternity. There is no more new revelation. The way that we persevere in our faith is knowing there is a day coming. And on that day, a day of distinction will be made. So there are days that your life, your future, your marriage, your family, your work, and you just fill in, it's going to look dark. And it's going to look bleak. And you're going to wonder, are you there, God? You're going to go, can I keep Going. But then we have the book of Malachi. We have all these other texts that have been given to us that we would know there's a day coming when the sun of righteousness will rise. And that warmth of his glory will fill this earth. And all who have believed in him will be gathered into his presence that we will be healed. That we will leap for all of eternity joy with him. We will share in his judgment never, ever, ever to experience evil, injustice ever again. That's how we endure. Yes, our faith matters. And some days it might not appear that way, but there's a day coming where everything will be made clear. Let's pray. Father, Father, I thank you for the book of Malachi. How relevant it is 
God, I know there are people here who have wrestled with deconstruction. I know we know people who are wrestling with how can you be God? How can you be present? How can you be good if certain things happen in this life? And Lord, I pray that today that your text, through the power of your spirit, fortifies our hearts, strengthens our faith, drives the roots of our faith deep into your character, into the gospel. And God, that we would have hope. Oh Lord, I pray that our hope is so clear to us today. That there is a day coming, a day of distinction, a day where you will make a separation between the godly and ungodly. And oh God, while there might be many dark days between now and that day, upon that day, we who have believed in you will never, ever experience darkness again. And Lord, I pray that we would know that day. And we would know that truth and that it would strengthen us and we would share that truth with one another here in this church and with other believers that we know. That when we begin to fall, when we begin to stumble, when we begin to question, we would share the truth of your word and the hope that we have. God, may we never, ever forget your scriptures that you have given us. Because our faith does matter. You sent your son to die so we would have faith and you will send him again to gather us. We long for that.